Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, and really excited to be with my co-host, Andy Dolich, and our special guest, in Dennis, Dennis Mannion, uh, former president of the LA Dodgers, former president of the Detroit Pistons. He was with the Philadelphia Phillies for a long time, and Dennis has a lot of experience we can all learn from. Uh, really excited as the two, the two guests on today both have worked in all four pro major sports. So we're going to hear a lot of uh, differences and comparisons between uh, working in each one of them um, and some exciting stories, of course. Uh, so without further ado, Dennis, welcome to the podcast. Jake, thanks for having me and, and uh, Andy as well. Absolutely. I just thought, uh, as you know, Dennis, I'm the great interrupter, but I just thought of a new term, right? There's now in front offices, there's the C-level suite, which didn't exist when you and I first started out. And there's yep. so many C's. Uh, but I'm going to go with the new one based upon the record that you and I have, which is FEO. Do you know any teams that have an F as in Frank EO? <laughs> I don't. Okay. So it's a uh, former executive of. That's, there we go. That is an I. And you can throw uh, our good friend Todd like Wiki in there too, but uh, as we can. <laughs> but I, I think FEO, uh, we are very proud of the fact that, you know, there's a lot of balls out there, many of which, uh, how does this sound? Many of which we've had our hands in. So, Dennis, <laughs> if, you, if you could... Wait, wait, roll that back. <laughs> if you could give our listeners a bit of a timeline from your early days with that great rollicking Phillies organization and talk about great people, please, because you had enough of them. Um, and what has transpired in the decades after that? Oh, that would be great, Andy. Thanks. Um, I was lucky enough, uh, first job, to um, join the Philadelphia Phillies in 1981. And I say lucky for a couple of reasons, starting with ownership had just uh, transitioned. Bill Giles had taken over the franchise. Bill was incredibly promotionally oriented, but also business oriented, where sports wasn't so business oriented in the previous decades, so much more player centric. Um, Bill brought um, an edge to it, certainly from a sales and marketing standpoint. And one of the gems uh, of his career was bringing Dave Montgomery, who was uh, ultimately my boss for 15 years to the Phillies. And Dave was Wharton grad who had done everything from work, um, the ticket office windows all the way to the presidency of the club and eventually became the chairman of the club. And what was a joy about joining it, and I didn't know it at the time, was that um, the word database had never even been discussed as far as I knew anywhere. And I got there, and that was a big part of the Philly culture. They had made a uh, deal with WorldCode Data, and the idea was they were going to create the greatest scouting reports of all time. It was a total failure. So they pivoted, and Dave asked the head of WorldCode if they had under their 16 and 13 game plans and so forth. So I arrived on the scene. They had 400,000 active people in the database with 26 account categories, which encompassed everything from the fanatic birthday party to dream week uh, trip people. 
And uh, you'd wonder like 400,000, well, how back in those days did they even dedupe the data? And that was the best part. They sent out a, a uh, quarterly newsletter and sacks of mail would come back, people that had moved. And they were the ones that got deduped to keep the database clean. But uh, <laughs> it was a, kind of a crazy situation. But uh, the net net of it was I got so lucky in that I went in and I think at the time I, I had passed. My mother still wants to kill me. I, I passed on a Rhodes Scholarship to join the Phillies in the ticket office of all places or sales office. And I'm so glad I did because I started in a zone where the revenue and the action was high. I uh, learned the database part of it, and the Philly systematically moved me through the promotions department, broadcasting department, committee relations, all the above. And eventually, um, about eight years into it, I became the head of marketing. And uh, that was just a joy to get in a position where you could create um, demand where demand, frankly, didn't exist. We had a very dry period from 1983 to 1983 between two different World Series appearances where if you didn't have a lot of strong marketing, you were out of luck. So um, it was fantastic to be in that organization. Uh, Dave Montgomery was a real pioneer in the league at that time. Andy, I know you knew him very, very well. You guys served on the on all the major committees and as a young guy, I only wished I could have been on. Um, and then one day a recruiter called um, to see if I'd have any interest in talking to a league. And this is actually a great story because the league they were talking about was the league I was in, Major League Baseball. And so I interviewed for a head of team marketing with Major League Baseball in 1996. And I made a decision for a lot of reasons that I'm not going to say on this podcast not to take the job. And I fretted for six months when another call came in uh, to uh, for a job in Denver with the Colorado Avalanche and the Denver Nuggets uh, to join them as the chief operating officer, which was a nice step up from, at the time, vice president of marketing into the world of chiefs. And so uh, we moved the five kids on out to, painfully, out to Colorado. And uh, I joined uh, my first ever dual job with the Avs and Nugs with two completely different personality types. The two sports are different and the people that ran them were different. But it was an awesome opportunity to build a culture that could swing in both of those directions. And one team, a Stanley Cup winner, the other team, a perennial loser. And um, how the different ways in which you had to be fluid in the way you marketed and sold and so forth. Unfortunately for me, um, the club sold right after we opened Pepsi Center. And uh, I moved on from there to the Baltimore Ravens as their chief operating officer. Uh, we won the Super Bowl there, and then eight years later, um, and that was a great time of the NFL, eight years later, um, off to the L.A. Dodgers. Um, I did not have anything to do with the divorce between the owners, but that happened. And uh, <laughs> next thing I know, I was relegated to Detroit. Uh, nothing bad about Detroit, but it's not L.A. And uh, came there as their chief executive officer for six years, and then I was exiled to uh, New Hampshire uh, where we make our home now. Dennis, as, as I'm listening to this with a gigantic smile on my face, because I was across the street at the spectrum, <laughs> as, as we think about it, none of those buildings that we started in exist anymore. And just look at the cost. I don't know what the vet cost or the spectrum cost. But that's probably what the locker room costs like in one of those facilities. And just 
how things have changed so drastically just in Stadia alone with a $5 billion price tag of the new Englewood football stadium. So take a moment as you go back to Philly and as you've seen these venues change in the different sports, what hits you the most about is it ever going to end or are we going to have Tesla stadiums in outer space? You know, it's, it's a crazy um, for me, there's, there's two sides of this coin. One is, uh, free agency alone started to put pressure on teams to, to, uh, to win and have to pay for it, to pay for it. You had to create new inventories. And on one hand, these new inventories, like new scoreboards and new ballparks and stadiums and arenas were like the thing and the greatest thing in the world for the fans. And on the other hand, uh, ticket prices and sponsorship fees and concession prices and parking all also went up. And Andy, I can't, I, I, you know, you can't predict how far this thing will go because the social impact of these leagues and teams is still in the heavens and the economic, economic impact, while it's improved, is still at the ground level. And it's all that creative space in between where every time you think there's not going to be another big broadcast t- contract or another big stadium or arena deal up comes another one with 17 other new accoutrements that you just have to have (laughs) yeah we we've talked about it with other guests and i think the number is in the vicinity which is a heck of a vicinity but uh the world is focused on the super bowl and we'll talk about kobe in a moment but the amount of money that is in guaranteed nfl contracts and all media is north of 50 billion dollars. That's billion, you know, Austin Powers, that's billion with a B. And, you know, when you start thinking about those numbers, I was in Memphis two weekends ago and very proud of what we built at FedEx Forum for the Grizzlies, all in, all in, 235 million. And a week before I was at a game at Chase Center, the new home of the Golden State Warriors, uh, $1.6 billion. And yeah. to your point, Dennis, talking about the social significance and the global impact, having worked in the NBA, as, as I did in three places and you have, it strikes me that when I heard the news yesterday, it was literally a gut punch. Um, and to the point that you've become friends with athletes and you've seen athletes pass, this one is truly, a, you know, a global tragedy with the other people that were involved. And, you know, clearly Kobe, he had some, he had some major penalties in his life, right. uh, but you listen to it now and it's everywhere. It's not just in L.A. It's in Italy. It's in China. It's in South America. How do you view this, having worked with so many athletes, that these individuals are now sort of citizens of the world? You know, um, it's interesting because every time that you contemplate the vast dollars that superstar athletes and even entertainers make, and then one of them passes, especially so tragically the way Kobe did, it gets back to, it's a, it reminds you of the happiness factor 
the impact they've had and the happiness they've created for so many people. And I mean that seriously, this guy, like you can, it just goes on and on and on and on on the number of memories that he's created for people. So good, bad, whatever, uh, uh, different aspects of his life where the bottom line was his impact on people's lives and keeping them happy and excited through the daily drudge of regular life was so monumental and found that with other great athletes that passed away too. It, it makes you count your blessings on one hand. On the other hand, you just smile over all the blessings that they gave you. So, you know, I thought I would be not, um, you know, I, I was, I was concerned about how last night's Grammys would go or the Grammys would go when they, when they attributed uh, Kobe, because I thought it might be getting a little bit too yucky, but the truth is it couldn't get yucky enough. It was, uh, you know, like to see all those fans outside of Staples, all the entertainers that had a bond with this guy and probably all the fans that were watching on television and what they thought of him. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and it was a perfect example, no matter how in tune you are with today's world, but you have these two gigantic photographs of Kobe Bryant next to Nipsey Hussle. Yeah. And I, I knew Nipsey Russell, who was a great <laughs> comedian, and I must admit, I wasn't, I'm not somebody who's collected all of the late Nipsey Hussle's <laughs> records, but it just shows the, and you know, they, they pointed out that Kobe is an Oscar winning short film director, all that he had, and the great ones, I mean, I've been lucky to work with a number as has Dennis. I always think about Ricky Henderson, where their smiles, just their countenance was enough to make people happy. And just to see the outpouring of emotion from people in L.A. and around the world who, you know, never once met Kobe Bryant, but his presence did something to enhance their lives. That. As, as hokey as it sounds, that is the power of sport and, you know, has taken Dennis and me and many others, you too, Jake, down many pathways to work for these entities. It, it's, it's, it, I'm sorry. It's absolutely amazing. Like I remember one of the reasons why I was so passionate about sports is as a big, believe it or not, Pittsburgh Pirate fan. I was so young, maybe 11 years old when Roberto Clemente died in a tragic uh, plane accident in, in, you know, in Nicaragua. And uh, it, the impact on that entire city, let alone, I don't know, outside of this, as a young kid, but it was like the place shut down for weeks. And again, Andy, like you said, it's just the, the amount of happiness they deliver. It isn't corny. It's, re it's real. Well, and Dennis, or Dennis, to your point, like with being up at the top of an organization like you were, um, what was kind of your viewpoint or, or what was your goal when you were at, at, at that level to make an impact not only on the organization, but on the city and the community around you um, and, and was a lot more than just the product on the field? Um, I frankly don't think that you could do those jobs. And Andy can comment on this. If you didn't in your spirit feel like you were doing good for other people, if you didn't feel that you were contributing to their happiness or contributing to their businesses, if you go that way, um, 
you couldn't do the job because the enormous pressures that you had on besides the revenues and keeping the expenses to a low, the rhythm of wins and losses and being the greatest guy in town to being the worst guy in town because of wins and losses, let alone the number of speaking appearances and media things you have to do. If you didn't have something to get you going beyond your paycheck, um, you know, that you wouldn't make it. There's no way. So for me, I always, I never I always counted my blessings being in the sport to begin with from the time I was a young guy, when things were going really bad at a team, I knew I could always walk out into at home plate in a ballpark or at the goal line at a, you know, an NFL stadium and feel awesome just to stand out there and look at all those seats and think how many people you can impact. So I hope that answered your question a little bit, Jake. It's just, when you're in that position, it's, it's something that if someone's in it without a heart, they're probably not very good at it. Yeah, you can't, you can't fake it. And, yeah. you know, to Dennis talking about Dave Montgomery, I always think about the scenes in It's a Wonderful Life with Clarence and James Stewart. Because we all come in contact with individuals who are angels put on earth yeah. to do good. And, yeah. you know, Dave Montgomery was definitely a baseball angel put on earth to do good. And the type of person that could be in the furthest reaches of the vet and talk to a security guy and sit face to face with a commissioner or a club owner before he was, look him straight in the eye and not waver for a second in something that he believed was best for the sport, best for the fans. And for those that, that have been listening to life in the front office, yes, there are some trite lessons, but Dennis, if you think about that team of individuals that you had at the Phillies, some got more credit than others, but how many were part of the success of the Phillies when they turned it around or organizations that we've all been in, if you've got um, that kind of quality leadership uh, don't just take a job because it's got a cool logo. Take a job because it's got better people. It might sound nuts, but you will look back and you will see those people within the organization who usually go on to great success and those that are just uh, dealing with maybe one primal individual doesn't work out so well. It, it, it's so true. And, you know, you need in my opinion, to be successful on the executive side of it anyway, even in the business, you need the latitude to be a great ambassador. So you pointed out Dave and the rhythm that he had with hosts and hostesses and concession people and parking people and so forth. I learned from him and I was so lucky, you know, the abs and nugs and so forth all the way through to have owners who appreciated the fact that you were an ambassador for the team and that when they wanted you for whatever they wanted you for, if you were out at the gates greeting fans or you were saying hello to the people that do all the work, you know, seating people or taking tickets, that they weren't going to come down hard on you. My fear is with the amount of debt that's coming into sports and the different types of groups that are buying in, the job at the top of the food chain could change dramatically to doing nothing but placating the needs of these new investors, therefore losing your top ambassador. And then what happens to the trickle down? piece of it. And it concerns me quite a bit because, you know, the beauty of that thing is to see the house manager out and about and walking and seeing and talking to everybody. And I, you know, corny or not, 
back in the day, back in the Sixers, I used to get jealous because Pat Croce would have these crazy, <laughs> <laughs> crazy invites to the court. He had everybody in that organization before the doors opened to have them all come into the, to the huddle on the court. And as corny as it was, it got them working like a whole different level to take well, care think, of their fans. I think if I remember this, and, you know, Pat was a comet, right, who sort of flashed across <laughs> yeah. the entity of sports. Um, but at one time, didn't he have everybody at the Sixers have the same business card? It had the team logo. Jake, yes. we talked about this, but it all said salesperson or yes. sales. <laughs> yes, just, that's awesome. It didn't list their titles which I thought was absolutely brilliant because, you know, in today's world of analytics and metrics, some yeah. people go sales. No, I don't know. What's that? Yeah. Or, <laughs> heart, or heart and soul. If you don't have heart and soul, it yeah. doesn't matter what your A&M looks like. You're going to fail miserably. Totally. Totally. Dennis, you know, you've been in quite a few cities, coast to coast, um, you know, and like you said earlier, you know, LA is a different community than Detroit, than Baltimore, than Philadelphia. What's been maybe the biggest thing you've noticed over your journey as to the differences and how to handle certain communities versus others? And, um, you know, let's just face it, right? The, the fan bases are different as well. Yeah, it's, 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 the biggest thing is, of course, you could relate it to just big and small, but you kind of can't because you get New York and LA. New York has a lot more rabid sports fans than I would venture to say Los Angeles does. But I think it's the, the rootedness to teams goes pretty far back. And I felt like if I could tap into kind of the DNA of the place, I, you know, all those years in Philly, I had formed an opinion that every fan is uh, passionate about, about at least the baseball, football, hockey teams um, and basketball teams. You know, I got to, to Denver and Denver was, you know, it's kind of a, at the time, the late 90s, a little bit of a nouveau race team. The Nuggets had been around. The Rockies were new. The Broncos had been around and well attended, but the other teams hadn't taken roots. And it was really bizarre. And then it, it was interesting to me to try to figure out, well, what is it going to be that will mature the city? So that was its challenge in and of its own, mature them on on a. On a, on a sports level, get them, get them kind of addicted to it, if you will. And, uh, you know, usually get them to do that by being relevant, which means win games. Um, and then kind of bouncing over to Baltimore, what a challenge. They were certainly a sports town, but the Colts had left them in 1984. And then all of a sudden they have this, you know, they left Johnny Unitas, a crew cut and three yards and a cloud of dust for that team. The Colts, they take off the team's furious. They, started to bond a little bit with the Steelers because they couldn't stomach the Redskins. But then comes this team that's uh, very urban-oriented and purple uniforms, and Ray Lewis is the heart and soul of the team. And you talk about a sea change for fans where they had to adapt. But again, it was kind of Ray Lewis and Ed Reed's leadership where the teams were so smash-mouthed. It really bought into the heart and soul of the blue-collar side of, of uh, Baltimore. And yeah, they did win the Super Bowl, but there were a few years before that. And uh, as these guys proved themselves, people started to show up. So I guess the long-winded point is city to city, um, the, the, the passion factor is a factor of how long has the team been around? How long has the market been a sports market? And then what are the things you're doing to make them bigger, better, and better than normal? And, 
And I would also say from a management standpoint, since that's what we're talking about, I'm sitting in my office and looking at uh, a pencil drawing that I have from, I don't know, 70 years ago or whatever of Ebbets Field, you know, mm -hmm. 1953. And it just shows the great moments in Ebbets Field where the Brooklyn Dodgers played. And then they go to L.A., and over time, and you know this because you were there, and I've always been a big Dodger fan, other than when that son of a bitch, Kirk Gibson, broke our heart <laughs> yeah. uh, with one of the greatest moments in sports history, not just baseball, like holy crap. But what the Dodgers have done over time, uh, not always perfectly, but made Dodger Stadium has that sort of heart and soul that we talked about. And we're able to transfer it from Brooklyn, New York, to the coolest, you know, place in the world. And, you know, Elysian Field Street or whatever in Dodger Stadium. And a lot of teams in these massive arms races to build multi-billion dollar venues, they fail to build in a heart and soul. And it doesn't matter how technologically advanced you are, because as soon as the next venue is built, you're number two. That's right. Um, you know, the O'Malley's, I mean, in particular, Walter O'Malley, so unbelievably progressive. That place is the, the contemplations to do what they did, eight different levels with five different colors. The colors representative of the flowers that were outside, which flowers, I don't know if you know this or not, were the with a wayfinding mechanism for people to find what level am I on? The flowers equaled what your ticket color was. Your seats were the colors of those flowers and those tickets. Um, you know, like these beautiful pastels. And he did this like amazing job of giving you the, the panorama of the, of the ravine. And, and um, also, you know, a lot of land to be able to, at the time, get in and out of parking. This is back in the day pretty well. And it had a vibe that hit Hollywood really well transition forward uh another group came in bought it tore all the seats out put in blue now this is a crazy thing o'malley's um contemplation was the only dodger blue you're ever going to see in my ballpark are, is what the players wear on the field everything else is going to be you know these pastels and very california-esque um and then you go to see how uh, an idea can be polluted another group came in tore all the seats out because the seats looked old and washed out but that's what pastel looks like by the way <laughs> and uh, took them all out changed it and uh, i'll give if, if uh, a lot of credit to the mccourts for coming back and particularly frank came back in and said wait a second why did they do all these things in the past and went back to the past looked at it tore all the blue seats out and put all the pastels back in no doubt the new group that's in there now, they'll probably tear them back out again. But in any event, Andy, to your point, in all seriousness, they built the Mecca the way they built that thing. And then I do think the Guggenheim group with the capital they have has done an amazing job of bringing some of the tech into it. Here's a crazy thing, though. The Detroit Pistons have 160 or had 164 suites at the Palace. You know how many suites Dodger Stadium has? 33. So says something, right? Yeah, and I always love the fact that where you could see the brightest stars, they could never be hidden away at Dodger Stadium. That's right. In a suite, right? Yep. They were always yep. out there. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's what people want to see. 
They want to interact. And you can literally be sitting next to somebody who's a megastar and they're fine. I'm at the ball game. You know, what do you do? Which transitions to this coming Sunday. I don't know how red, you know, it's going to be very confusing, right? You have two teams red on teal seats, right? I think Hard Rock has teal seats. Like, uh, teal and red do not go. So I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work out. But as we sort of close in to the, the final part of this, the, the amount that people have to pay for tickets now, there's been a lot of crying in many sectors uh, that, sports, professional sports, is just not affordable anymore. And that with seat licenses or just the face value of tickets where you might have spent a hundred bucks for an NBA ticket, they moved to a new place, that ticket is now $500. What do you think the sort of diminishing point of return is where we have disposable income in almost every city, not a problem. But are we turning fans away from the game because it just isn't affordable? You know, it's interesting in that the great leveler seems to be technology, starting with secondary ticket markets. And who knows what's to come on top of it. But it feels like, feels like um, more and more people, less and less people are coming for full seasons. More and more people are either uh, reselling their package, which can be a bad thing in some ways. And uh, more and more people are getting exposed. All along, there's so much more entertainment. So I got to figure that this stuff levels itself out one way or the other. Now, I, people have said that before, and I don't mean just in terms of uh, revenue. I mean, in terms of how you go about packaging to generate interest for folks. Um, you were bringing up Dodger Stadium, for example. It's a little bit off point, but the one thing they've always had to modernize the bathrooms because as you move from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, troughs went away, right? And, <laughs> and, and it's same, same with the ticket. People have different expectations around the ticket now than they did in the past, like in terms of what access it gives them, the, uh, what, what types of deals they get when they go into the place and they've got a particular type of ticket that interfaces with some technological device if first off the ticket is on a technological advice advice um, device and they they pick up discounts at different times and different food products or different different merchandise items so i think there's a value that's being derived that the tickets could never sustain themselves at the prices that are being charged if not for those values all that said don't kid yourself. The Super Bowl tickets, for example, they've always gone for, you know, five turns and who knows how many X now, you know, they, they can't, the league can't stomach raising the price high enough, you know, to like outpace how much people will buy them for. It's nuts. Yeah, that is the great thing of any market that you work in yep. and Jake, you in the, in the golf business, if you tell somebody, hey, uh, these courtside seats are going to cost you $5,000 a game. In 15 minutes, if you're a good salesperson, you could find somebody who goes, only 5000 Could I pay 10000 And please tell everybody what my name is that I paid 10000 There you go. There you go. It, it's yeah. like there's a hole in the suites games that started a, a while ago where people come to their suite, they close their door, and there's no interaction outside of your suite. 
one day somebody woke up in our world of sports marketing and started creating these common pre and post game areas just for the principles of the suites so that they had another reason to buy those expensive suites. And it was a business interaction they could do with other people, or they had microwave baseball leagues or whatever else to get CEOs and companies together. But it's always been like every team that's able to trade on the access corporately uh, makes out like a bandit. Yeah. You know, I, as uh, thinking about Kobe, you know, people, Hey, I was on the court near Kobe. I was at a Phillies game and saw Steve Carlton and Mike yeah. Schmidt. I was at the A's watching Dennis Eckersley and Jose and Mark McGuire bomb stuff 600 feet out into the stadium. That's sort of the magic of sport. I could never be that, even though my companies were $6.8 billion. But I was sort of on the court close to that person. There we go. How kind of unique and odd and wonderful that is. It's, it's, the, it's the fight for the status and, and the ability to say that I was there. And, yep. and it's, you know, when this happened, I was, right? To, to your point about impact, Andy, it's when this happened, I remember where I was. And it's not necessarily like, you know, the most famous moments in history of the world famous, but it's still those things that impact people enough to where they do remember, you know, when so-and-so won the Super Bowl or the World Series, where they were at that point in time, who they were with, right? We, we won't go there, but the world's focus until Sunday morning was at the floor of a building in Washington, D.C., and at 10 o'clock, when tragedy struck, it moved across the country to another place where it is now. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Dennis, uh, thank you so much for your time and really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Um, certainly welcome you on again. Uh, and Andy, any last final words? Yeah, Dennis, how many rings, how many championship rings do you have? I have, um, I've got uh, two World Series, a Stanley Cup, and a Super Bowl. So four. Uh, so he's got four. I have one. I feel so useless. Oh, come on now. The rest of my day is just going to be Get out of here. such a bummer. <laughs> where are those rings? Where do you keep your rings? That's last the best point. Question. Where do you keep your rings? That's the best question. In a drawer in this little office I have back in New Hampshire. <laughs> my, my, mine are in a safe deposit box in the peninsula and I think the boxes are way cooler than the rings how crazy is that all I can tell you is when I first started dating my wife I had an 83 World Series ring on it took about a year and she finally said can you do me a favor and take the ring off because you look absolutely <laughs> ridiculous let alone when uh, I wear this your wife and my wife are in the same school <laughs> what do you think you're a capo in New York take the damn ring off well, I wore the Super Bowl <laughs> ring for like two days until some guy some smart smart Alec and Baltimore where I was walking down the street and guy said, hey, are you one of the mascots? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, or, hey, is that a real ring or oh, yeah, is that exactly. one of those giveaways? Totally, uh, totally. Dennis, Great. thank you. Uh, Jake, uh, this, this was a keeper, huh? This was an absolute <laughs> yeah. keeper. Thanks, guys.